Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast, aimed at helping you live an active, healthy, and enjoyable life in and around Spokane, Washington. Brought to you by Gordon Physical Therapy. And now, here's your host, Dr. Luke Gordon. Hey, everybody, it's Luke Gordon. Thank you for joining me on the latest episode of the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast. And today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Jason Aldred, who is a neurologist at Selkirk Neurology here in Spokane. And Dr. Aldred is a specialist in Parkinson's disease. And that's today's topic is Parkinson's. We're going to cover all sorts of information on it. And basically, we're going to go through information on what Parkinson's is, what it looks like, how you diagnose it. And then we'll get into treatment of Parkinson's as well as some other aspects of life that people with Parkinson's um, are affected by. And then we'll also get into some other interesting tips for people with Parkinson's and family members, as well as some of the latest research. So it should be quite a bit of information. Again, if uh, if you're suffering from Parkinson's or someone in your life is, it there should be quite a bit of, inf- of information for you guys to take home and you know hopefully put together and put into play with your life. Um, so Dr. Aldred, uh, first off, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah. to be here. Good, good. So before we jump into Parkinson's, if you wouldn't mind, just give us a little bit about your history, how you got into neurology and how you came to specialize. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was interested in neuroscience um, in, in high school somewhat and in college, certainly more so uh, interested in going into medical school. Actually, my background uh, started out in Greek and Latin. So I started out in, in the classics and was very interested in the concept of consciousness, origins of consciousness, and kind of led into neuroscience and the idea of free will and kind of wondering, well, gosh, this is an interesting philosophy. Like, what's the biology behind, you know, kind of how we move, how we think, you know, our behaviors and, you know, that, that sort of thing. And uh, then from there, the rest of its history, we went to medical school at University of Tennessee, where uh, I was for four years in Memphis, and then on to my uh, residency at Oregon Health Science University in neurology, and then I stayed on for two years, Parkinson's Movement Disorders Fellowship, where I got to learn more about uh, kind of to see the actual uh, aspects of, of kind of the translation of, of you know, the, the concept of free will and what is normal movement, what is abnormal movement, you know, and, and how do we treat that? How do we make people better that are having those problems? That's an interesting background, getting with uh, the Greek and the Latin first and then transitioning more to the science end of it. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is a little different. I was kind of in this program where we, we combined it and had to, Right, a, a kind of the equivalent of a master's thesis in college, which was a, a mental illness and neurological disorders in the eighth to second century BCE. <laughs> kind of looking at, <laughs> looking mouthful. at, yeah, yeah, looking at kind of um, you know text from uh, antiquity uh, and classical Greece, and then Alexandrian Egypt, and uh, uh, on into kind of a little further into you know kind of Roman times, just a little bit there. But uh, it was interesting, you know, I kind of did it. I've always done what I've done because it was interesting and enjoyable, led me to the next thing, led me to where I am today, I guess. So I was fortunate to be able to do that and enjoy what I do. Yeah, that's great. Now, when it comes to movement disorders, was there anything that drew you specifically towards Parkinson's? Because there's kind of a handful to select from. Right. Well, you know, I think the, the you know, I'd like to, you know, like, like uh, others in the community would like to have a job that has a purpose and makes people's lives better. And, you know, I was certainly drawn to, um, how how bad people can do that have neurologic problems. I think it's very tragic, and uh, certainly wanting to to contribute in some way to, to helping them to advancing science and concepts of, of you know ideas like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. They, you know they're very different, but they they share the aspects of being degenerative brain disease. And that's just such a horrible idea to hear from your doctor. You have a degenerative brain disease. It's a scary thing. And so as I learned more about neurology and Parkinson's disease in particular. Uh, you know, I found that, you know, although there's much we can't do still for Parkinson's, although we've got a lot of exciting research coming out, 
there's a lot that we can do. And the more I learned about uh, Parkinson's disease, I learned that not only medication, but just so many aspects to uh, understanding how people can live well with Parkinson's disease. And this is the kind of, fortunately, the time we're living in now, people you know live well with diabetes, right? We live well with hypertension. We treat these things and Hopefully most people, most listeners know that, you know, there's more than just pills for all these conditions. There's exercise behaviors. And so I've always thought that it was really uh, an interesting thing to kind of learn about these conditions, like use knowledge as the ultimate, you know, tool to educate people about, you know, how to do better. So I kind of like, like kind of probably the most satisfying aspect of this work is kind of breaking that myth of like, oh, there's nothing we can do. When I, when I really kind of can help be one of the people to deliver that message, it's just very rewarding. So I, I think kind of learning from my professors and teachers before me, you know, kind of um, how to do that. It was just kind of seeing them do that. I'm like, oh, I definitely, I want to be like those guys. I want to be able to kind of, kind of step in and help these people at a really bad time in their life to kind of, you know, make, make it better for them and, and be part of kind of improving things from there, then on. That's awesome. Yeah. It's like it's enjoyable work. And yeah, it is. It is. There's lots lot that we can't do, but so much that we can. Yeah. Now, are you from Spokane or what brought you up here? Well, uh, I'm from uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. Uh, so it's a town outside of Nashville, about an hour. Um, I grew up down south. I'm a southerner. I still count myself as a southerner. Uh, but uh, I, I wanted to do something very different, being a different part of the country. And was looking around at different programs in various areas, kind of outside of where I grew up. And, you know, really just fell in love with the Northwest. And I ended up in Portland. It was has a great training program. And then went back to the Midwest area where my wife is from. And we're there for... Uh, about four or five years and uh, had a great program, uh, Gunderson Health System, and uh, but just kind of missed the Northwest. And so we were kind of looking around and uh, looked at, you know, Seattle, Portland, Ben had some offers in those areas and then heard about Spokane and we're like, oh, I don't, I don't remember ever really going there. What, what's, what's, what does that even look like? And so uh, called up a, a friend of mine who's our neurosurgeon here, uh, Dr. Jonathan Carlson, who's a wonderful DBS neurosurgeon. Um, learned about Jamie Mark, my other colleague here, uh, who is a nurse practitioner who's excellent, really world-renowned in DBS programming. And um, and then uh, the natural environment of the area. It's got all the things I love about the Northwest uh, without, you know, some of the, the hassles of some of the bigger areas. And uh, after we kind of just looked at it, stepped back, it was, you know, sort of a no-brainer to, to come to Spokane. Yeah, that's awesome. No-brainer, no pun intended. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, a lot of brain jokes, I'm yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. A few corny ones. We're neurologists. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah. And for those listening, um, DBS is deep brain stimulation. That's right. Yeah. Deep brain stimulation. We'll, we'll maybe talk about that in a little bit. One of the, the more advanced treatments for Parkinson's are very exciting. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. Well, good. So let's get into some, um, some information specific to Parkinson's. And one of my questions is how do people typically come to find out they have Parkinson's? Is it more along the lines of, of them kind of self-identifying or is it family members that kind of notice something and get them into the doctor and refer or or maybe a mix of those? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a spectrum. I mean, first of all, I'll, I'll kind of maybe jump ahead just briefly, then kind of backtrack. With Parkinson's, you know, we make a diagnosis uh, uh, clinically. This is called a clinical diagnosis. You know, if you have uh, uh, a lot of times prostate cancer is diagnosed with your PSA test, your, your blood test or something, right? Or, um, um, you know, some other problems diagnosed with like an x-ray. Par Parkinson's is diagnosed with a clinical exam. So it's taking a history, listening to a patient, trying to tell what's gone on, and then uh, doing an examination and looking for three features, slowness, stiffness, and tremor. Um, on one side of the body more than the other, that's called an asymmetry. So it's not symmetric, one side more than the other. And now the, the trick with this is uh, not everyone presents the same way. And 
people with Parkinson's that like to, uh, that have, you know, have, they've learned about this. They kind of make the joke that they're snowflakes, right? Because there's so many different types of snowflakes and there's not one the same. And, um, and, and then Parkinson's has lots of those components. I mean, it shares, uh, the one feature Parkinson's disease shares among all others is, is slowness. So if you were to ask me, you only have one word, what one word would tell me as much as I could need to know about Parkinson's, it would be slowness far and away. Uh, one of the myths is that everyone with Parkinson's has tremor. That's not true. Uh, tremor is present two out of three times about it. It's a resting tremor. It's usually a tremor that's present, that's more pronounced, at least when a person's distracted or not, you know, kind of doing anything with their hand, walking. So just kind of based on that, you can kind of imagine if a person had any one of those symptoms, it might be uh, they're walking slower, uh, and that's happening over months or sometimes years. It may be years that this is going on. Uh, maybe they've got stiffness in a shoulder, a stiffness in a leg, a foot. Uh, maybe it's just normal, but it's worse with activity, with moving. And, and uh, you know, that's gradually worse over years. So you can imagine if there's just that, right, how many people experience and see older people, particularly who Parkinson's preferentially have more effects, yeah, slowness. Well, it's, you know, am I just getting older? It's a valid question. You know, people will come in uh, sometimes uh, just kind of thinking that they've just, they're just getting older and they are, you know, so there's that to contend with, but is this normal or not? And that's where we kind of look for the asymmetry. So is one side different than another? Is there a particular pattern of slowness? And those are the individuals, the people that come in for a Parkinson's diagnosis who, you know, go, can go months or years, many years sometimes before diagnosis. If a person has a tremor, a resting tremor, particularly if it's on one side of the body, I think, you know, we're, you know, in general society is always becoming more and better educated about, you know, great many things medical. And uh, it's not unusual nowadays for someone to come in and say, I think I have Parkinson's, a patient. And, and when Parkinson's has that large kind of shaking tremor on a hand and, and uh, maybe a stoop posture and there's these other components and, you know, without, even to the general listener, I think that um, and there's probably a good portion of people out there. If I said, does that guy look like he's got Parkinson's? They would kind of, they, they may not know exactly what I'm meaning uh, by, you know, in details, but they would kind of understand that and can pick that out. And that's because people have kind of learned more about it. And, you know, things like we're doing now, we're talking more about it. There's more education. So, so we do have a mixture of people coming in. Some will come in with like, a, do I have Parkinson's? Other will come in, you know, I, I'm slow. I'm not moving as well. I don't know what's going on. Is there, is this MS, you know, and, for an older person, we generally don't see that, you know, as a, as a particular cause of those problems. Uh, so, uh, and then uh, it's family. Family is the other thing too, is, uh, you know, it's a very normal uh, response to uh, one's body having some difficulty, particularly if slow over time, to kind of normalize it and say, well, I don't really need to worry about this. It's not getting the works really quickly. It's probably aging. But to the outward observer, to the family in particular, that may see come back and see mom or dad, you know, in snapshots and kind of see that they look different. There's just something going on and they're dragging them into the neurologist office. And most normal people are probably understandably terrified to have to go see a neurologist because, you know, there's so many serious things that we treat and, uh, you know, you could get very bad news uh, like Parkinson's or there's things that are far worse in, in my view that we don't have treatments for. So, you know, I understand some of the, the delay and diagnosis based on that. But uh, really, the, the big thing with, uh, uh, is, is actually making the diagnosis. So once the diagnosis is made, then, then and, and, a, and a really uh, honest conversation is had about, you know, kind of the, some of the, the problems with Parkinson's and also some of the ways we can treat Parkinson's, it opens up a whole other door and people can kind of get past that. Yeah. 
That's interesting because like you said, with some things, it's a little more cut and dry. You know, like you said, um, um, a PSA test for a prostate or something like that. Or, you know, with mm -hmm. MS, typically they're doing an MRI. Yeah, MRIs are generally very useful for that. Yeah, a little more like everyone wants the concrete diagnosis these days. Well, and, and imaging, you know, and, and neuroimaging is really phenomenal. Uh, brain imaging compared to in the past, you know, it's really been a wonderful asset. And, and for Parkinson's disease, MRIs are, are not useful. Uh, they're, okay. they're, they're almost never useful. Uh, in, in terms of Parkinson's disease, where they are useful if someone looks like they've got Parkinson-like symptoms, but there's something a bit unusual, uh, then we'll usually order a brain MRI to make sure there's nothing else unusual, like weird, like a, maybe explain like a tumor or something you know, really scary or that we would treat differently. Uh, but the, the, uh, if the, that's why it's important to have a, a neurological exam, and you know, in my opinion, uh, any physician, but, but certainly if one can find a neurologist to do a neurological exam to, to look at the sensation, movement, you know, vision, speech, uh, thinking, uh, walking, to, to do those careful assessments. You know, that, that's one of the things that drew me to this field is it's very bread and butter medicine. So we live in this world of all this technology, but um, particularly as it pertains to movement disorders, which Parkinson's is a movement disorder, uh, the, the examination is, is super important. And just sitting there and thinking about the problem, thinking about the complexity of, of what this could be. So through thinking about the problem and, and doing a careful examination, that's really almost what you need almost all the time. And, and rarely do you ever need anything else like blood testing or brain MRIs or anything like that. Yeah, that's great. So it sounds like the biggest part of the process really is the differential diagnosis and making yeah. sure it's not yes. one of these other things that it could be. And that's correct. It's really Absolutely. Down. Awesome. So like you said, it uh, it's interesting that a lot of the – the signs and symptoms are just very similar to getting old in general or what some people um, perceive as getting old. Well, you're just kind of slowing down, you know, maybe you're just not as coordinated or your, you know, your posture has changed, but there's definitely some hallmark signs there people should be aware of. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's what we kind of call the, the cardinal features of Parkinson's that's taught to us as medical students. And the cardinal mean the main ones, you know, the cardinal directions are the main directions. So the cardinal features are slowness or bradykinesia, slow movement. Uh, and this is the arms or the legs. So it can be when buttons, zippers, eating, uh, grooming, hygiene. If something becomes slower, um, uh, a leg, slower walking. Um, I do finger taps and toe taps, but that's not a really practical thing most people do. That's how we examine them in the examination room. Uh, but, you know, it really translates into what stuff are you doing that's slow. So I kind of, here's a little cheat uh, here. I'll tell everyone how we do on our exams. They say, how are you now compared to a year ago? How are you now compared to two years ago? And if they say, well, I was okay and getting a little slower, maybe, but boy, it got a lot slower six months ago. Things really started to change rapidly. And so knowing that that's kind of changed over time is really helpful with speed. Uh, the resting tremor, again, is a, a big thing. That's kind of the hallmark of Parkinson's. and uh, But it's not, people don't have to have a tremor to have Parkinson's. Two out of three people will not have tremor and still have Parkinson's. Two out of three won't have it? Uh, I'm uh, two out of, sorry, th two out of three people will have tremor, okay, will have tremor. Yeah, and so two out of three people uh, have tremor, one out of three don't. Um, so, you know, most do, and it can be fine. It can be very mild. It can be big. The size of the tremor doesn't really have any uh, significant effect on what, you know, Parkinson's type they have. Um, and uh, rigidity or muscle stiffness. And that's something where a lot of times we'll see physical therapy. Uh, they will have seen the orthopedist. Uh, it's not unusual for a patient to have gone in for shoulder stiffness. So if I had a nickel for every person with Parkinson's who had shoulder stiffness that uh, came in, that would be a full jar. 
uh, and <laughs> they may have have received injections uh, uh, in the shoulder. You know, some people may have even considered surgery. Sometimes gone through surgery for shoulder, you know, kind of rotator cuff issues, which you know they could have perhaps indirectly related to disuse or some issues related to control of the shoulder. And and that that that's a little that's an interesting symptom because you know achiness, right? I mean, who who doesn't ache? You know, any reasonably active person does. And and then uh, people that are, that are inactive have aches too. So. Uh, a lot of those folks will come through the physical therapist and the physical therapist, uh, particularly I think in this area, are pretty uh, uh, dialed into the idea about, you know, Parkinson's science and may nudge them or call their primary doctor and say, hey, why don't you think about Parkinson's here? We're noticing on their evals some significant you know, differences from side to side and they're that pain that they were sent in for. Or there's more to it than that. And that can be really helpful. That, that, I think the rigidity or the stiffness can be the other thing. So it's a slowness, uh, resting tremor, rigidity, and then uh, walking difficulties, uh, kind of walking and steadiness, that sort of thing. Usually that's not very significant in Parkinson's early on, but as it progresses, it can be more of a problem. Okay. And then so with our current medical system, do, do people need a referral to see a neurologist if they think they have Parkinson's or do they have to go through like a primary? You know, it's all over the board. I mean, in our clinic here in Silkert Neurology, we don't have require referrals. Uh, anyone can call in and get a, a, a visit or get scheduled. Uh, it depends on the plan. It's really dictated more by the insurance and the hospital system. Um, so there are HMO systems where, you know, they're uh, understandably trying to control cost and want to make sure people are being seen for things after their primary doctors have taken a look. So certainly would recommend that uh, anyone that has concerns about Parkinson's symptoms for themselves or someone else, they talk to their primary doctor first. It's a great place to start. Primary doctors are, are uh, trained to understand. Our primary care providers, nurse practitioners and uh, PAs are um, uh, trained to spot some of the signs of this and then can, you know, work that up further. Uh, and then can be kind of a gateway in. Uh, but but for many people in most communities, uh, neurologists are able to see people without necessarily having a referral. I wouldn't think that that is always the case by any means. Okay, that sounds good. Well, good. So now let's say if we're kind of going along the timeline of someone with Parkinson's, they've got a, you know, hopefully got a good physical exam and a pretty good idea if they've they have Parkinson's. What is kind of the first step or two with treatment then? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, at the time I make an initial diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, you know, I, I kind of have an abbreviated version of the conversation we're kind of having. And I tell them I'm, I'm certain that this is Parkinson's. And, and then I, I tell them that it, you know, progresses slowly, not rapidly. Parkinson's doesn't progress rapidly, but slowly over time. And then, you know, I, I really try to shift the conversation pretty quickly uh, to how to live well with Parkinson's because uh, I, just to put myself in someone else's shoes hearing that, I would imagine it's a very heavy thing to hear. So uh, that will have plenty of time to sink in. Uh, but I want them to at least leave uh, an office visit where they've had the diagnosis of Parkinson's, knowing that there's so much we can do to treat these symptoms. And they can live a, a great life, a very good life. Uh, with while having Parkinson's disease, you know, and in the past, uh, the, one of the things we have to counter is the a person's impression of maybe their parent or their uncle or someone they knew that had Parkinson's years ago, and and you know, like any condition, uh, there are there are certain types of cancers who you know certainly they're rapidly progress and there's things we can't do, and there are variations of Parkinson's that can be a little nastier. There are not many of them. Mostly, uh, Parkinson's disease, particularly nowadays, there's so much that we can do to to treat people to have them do well. And the, the trick, too, is to let patients know or someone who's been diagnosed with Parkinson's, let them know that, you know, a lot of this is going to be for, you know, someone like myself as a neurologist or their primary care doctor or provider. Um, then there's others. There's health, other health professionals, physical therapists and other therapists. And then the ball's in their court for some of this, too. You know, I do try to put a little bit of 
uh, a little bit of uh, emphasis on personal responsibility in terms of exercise and diet and things like that. So uh, I tell them, first of all, I tell them there's four things. And I just kind of came up with this. I'm sure I've heard it from my teachers over time and kind of combined it together. But um, exercise, exercise, exercise. And I say that three times, uh, almost a little silly in a way, but but to let them know that it's really, truly that important. And, you know, we've we've had a lot of public health and uh, teaching through schools, you know, kind of emphasis on exercise. So there's an element of that, I think, sometimes goes in one ear and out the other. But um, it's a great time at, when you're diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease to hear that exercise helps. I feel it's a very uh, uh, appropriate time to really hit that home. And I tell you, I have seen some people become healthier after a Parkinson's diagnosis than, than before because they had a pretty good reason to, to make some changes. It's all about motivation, isn't it? Yeah, it is about motivation. And, and it's, I feel that you know, the job of, a, 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 my job, at least as a physician and any other healthcare providers is, is to do far more than, than, than only prescribing pills. You know, I think our role, I, I believe that the role of a healthcare provider in our society should, that education is probably the, the most important thing that we do. I feel that we're the, the best sources of, of medical information uh, for uh, our patients. And I think that the time of a new diagnosis is probably the most, we call it salient or most important time to really deliver this accurate information. And I think things like exercise are so very important. And I, and I, and my patients, if anyone's listening, that's my patient, well, it's probably rolling their eyes by now because they've heard this speech from me, you know, every time. <clears throat> uh, but um, there is some real uh, benefits now and independent. We know that there's heart and lung benefits of exercise, but there's also significant benefits that are seen in animals that are made to look Parkinson's like that are put at risk for Parkinson's. And one group is given opportunity or, you know, animals, if you like a mice, for example, you put them in a flywheel type of apparatus, they'll run, they just do this, you know, and others that don't have that opportunity that aren't able to exercise, they actually are shown to have much worse symptoms. Now you can't, we've, you know, if you've read any medical research, you know, that medical things that we test in animals don't necessarily hold true in humans. So the, the, the carryover on that is in human trials on exercise, you know, it's really interesting. Um, uh, it seem uh, for the vast majority of well-done clinical trials on exercise, it doesn't seem to really matter exactly the type of exercise. It just matters that there's some type of program. In other words, there's some plan, there's some adherence to it. Uh, exercise is not just gardening. It's not just taking a leisurely walk down the boulevard. It really is, you know, targeted activity to the point of some physical exertion uh, over, you know, maybe half an hour if a person can tolerate that and, and, and different time periods of different types of exercise, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, that, that generally is shown to be quite adequate. Uh, World health organization recommends, recommends 150 minutes a week of exercise for uh, any healthy adult. And, and that general principle uh, applies to Parkinson's. But the important point here is that we do have evidence that, that exercise certainly in animals and probably in humans as well enhances dopamine release. We haven't really gone into it yet, but we know that Parkinson's disease, the degeneration in Parkinson's comes from the chemical dopamine being low. The vast majority of the brain is healthy in Parkinson's and remains so throughout one's life, although there's spread of the Parkinson's-like changes you know, throughout the brain over time. Uh, but that specific area where dopamine is involved is really affected quite a lot. And exercise has this unique ability to enhance the release of dopamine. It makes probably our brain more efficient in how it uses the dopamine that, that remains. And uh, this is all independent of the heart and lung benefits, which, by the way, go along with that. 
So that's one important thing is the, the neurochemistry of exercise, and that's just kind of an overview. The other aspect is the physical conditioning. So uh, exercise makes um, muscles, joints, tendons, ligaments. It makes those healthier, safer, more efficient, uh, uh, more resistant to damage if one falls. And, and that's kind of why I boil it down when I'm talking to my patients. I say, look, you're not going after a beach body here, nor do you have to run a marathon. You're not going after building muscle where we really want to maintain. The goal is really maintain. Uh, I, I recommend a variety of exercise uh, categories, and I leave that to the professionals, the physical therapists and whatnot. Oh, that's, to come, that's you too. <laughs> that to, come, to come up with the exact plan on, on that, though, because I, th- I feel that there's that the, the, the scope of practice is really important to kind of understand what we can all bring to the table. But uh, aerobic uh, activity, uh, you know, uh, strength-building activity, maintaining activity, uh, uh, flexibility, range of motion, um, and then kind of core stability, which is a little bit of the same, but a little bit different as it pertains to balance, uh, you know, and, and then agility. And, and agility, I think, is a hard thing. I think as adults, we've kind of lost the playfulness of youth and we've lost that gaminess of jumping around and whatnot. And uh, we exercise, we tend to do things only in the forward and backwards direction, maybe in the side side direction. And that's where I'll just mention briefly two things with exercise and we'll go on. But um Dancing, you know, dancing has uh, been shown to be uh, uh, very effective to treat Parkinson's symptoms, to help symptoms. And in fact, in a clinical trial, exercise and dance, running and dance, were compared. And they were, they were both helpful, but there was one aspect of, of dance that was uh, superior. Can you guess what that was? It's probably the cross-body rotational type motions. Spoken like a true professional, yeah. the patients rated it as fun. It was more fun. There you go. So they're more likely to stick <laughs> yeah. with it. Yeah, that's right. They were more likely to be motivated. And that's yeah. the biggest barrier is the motivation. And so that, that's what I, I tell my patients. is like, they're like, well, what is the one thing? Boxing. No, boxing's been a great one lately. That's kind of been the new thing after dance. And, and I say, you know, anything that you can do that you can have fun doing, that you can do with your spouse and uh, uh, or partner or friend or, you know, dog or whatever, uh, any type of activity that you're going to be more active. And, uh, you know, that, that's really what I recommend. I don't, I don't give any one specific thing because no one ex- form of exercise has been shown far superior to another. So there's exercise, 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 and then rehab uh, therapy. So that's where I come in pretty early on with physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy. And the, the way I've, I say this to my patients is, you know, if, if we're left to our own devices, we'll do what we're good at, not necessarily what we need. And, you know, I'm like, how many athletes go very far without a coach? Like, well, you know, not many. Um, and, and I kind of explain the role of the therapist as kind of a coach. And, and they're there to, to really uh, recognize an area where people are doing well, uh, utilize that and maximize that to their advantage. And also find the areas they're not doing so well. And so like, hold them to uh, performing better in those areas. And, 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 and frankly, as a physician, you know, we're educated about you know, kinesiology and, and muscle physiology and whatnot. But I don't really, for the vast majority of us with maybe sports and medicine docs aside, certainly not neurologists, are, are we really experts in, in exercise and, and advice about that? And so, uh, you know, I refer early and often for physical therapy, speech and occupational therapy. And I let people know that that's a covered benefit. It's already something they paid for if they're Medicare, you know, you need to use your benefits. And so we try to time that and I will kind of leave it to the, the therapy uh, uh, folks to do the timing of that. There are certain specific therapies like the big therapy, the loud therapy. We have a great speak out program here that Doreen Nichols has been working with, which is phenomenal. And so uh, there's there's lots of different ways of getting at this. But the concept there is Parkinson's, if you can imagine it, right? It makes things slow and small. It brings the body forward. It flexes things. Same for the voice. Um, 
and, and other aspects as well. And so the idea of these therapies is, as I kind of have conceptualized and explained it to patients, and I've heard this from my physical therapy colleagues, so I, I didn't come up with this myself. I pirated it from smarter people than me is to uh, the, these therapies are through the, the the guidance of the therapist or their assistant uh, helps uh, these patients project bigness on their body largeness largeness of voice you know brings the soft voice of parkinson's and they learn to project it so they're louder so there's exercise there's rehab services we just covered and medications are uh, phenomenal in parkinson's to me that's the the magical part that i interact with is you know they say you know, the, the best type of science seems like magic uh, or at least, you know, yesterday's magic is today's science. Uh, and and that, that's, I think, very true in Parkinson's disease because um, when we see that the dopamine levels are low and we give someone a medicine like levodopa, and there's many different medicines in Parkinson's that are useful. But levodopa is one medicine that's useful in Parkinson's because it's turned into dopamine in the brain. Dopamine's low. You give more dopamine, the person moves better and sometimes normally. Sometimes you can't even tell they have Parkinson's. Not for everyone, but for many people. And uh, over time, because Parkinson's progresses, a person does have to take more levodopa over time or maybe take a higher dose. And really, at, if they get to the point where the meds are kicking in and wearing off, uh, the levodopa is working for a while. But, but if we can figure out ways, like as one of my jobs as a physician to treat more moderate in Parkinson's, is to time the dosing of the medicine correctly, time the, the milligrams of each dose correctly. And when you get that just right, uh, and a person goes from a period of time where they can't move well, we call that the off symptoms. They can't move well, they're slow, they've got stiffness, tremor. So they look Parkinson's-like, right? And then they take their medicine and within 15, 20 minutes, it's like flicking a switch. And it's it's phenomenal to see that. And, and, you know, most of us who work with people with Parkinson's have seen that transition from the off to the on state. And, uh, and just to see that is, is really phenomenal. And to understand that we can do this through the medications that many of these meds, you know, most of them are generic. Uh, there's new ones out, but a lot of them are very affordable, very easy to access. Uh, but, but carefully using the medicines is very important so that people can get the best benefit with the fewest or ideally, you know, no or minimal side effects. Um, it's just a very rewarding thing to be able to, to manage the medications and, and to see this improvement. Um, the, the last aspect, we talked about exercise, rehab, meds, and then there's advanced treatments. I used to say just, you know, surgery for Parkinson's, but now there's way more than that. Uh, but there's advanced treatment for Parkinson's, and that's uh, nowadays deep brain stimulation surgery, which we briefly referred to earlier, and also levodopa pump. So there's two things now that are FDA approved to treat Parkinson's. Uh, deep brain stimulation has been FDA approved since December of 1997. Or, I'm sorry, uh, since, well, since mid-1997. In December of 1997, actually in Spokane, we did the first DBS surgery in the state of Washington, believe it or not, in, in Spokane. Yep. Uh, Dr. Hershower performed that surgery. And so uh, really this area, Spokane, has been a leader in, in bringing new therapies for Parkinson's for a long time. So I feel fortunate to be kind of just part of that chain uh, stepping in and um, – Deep brain stimulation is for people whose meds are working well, but maybe not lasting a long time, and there's wearing off episodes in between. So in other words, if you could visualize a person who has Parkinson's, they're slow, they're stiff, they have tremor, and then they take their Parkinson's medicine, and it kicks in, and they actually look normal. They look really good, but maybe that's two hours or three hours. So they have this good medicine effect, but then the medicines wear off again. And, and that, that happens, again, because it progresses over time. That's That's the reason that that you, people have that effect. And so in, what happens is this is an individual with Parkinson's taking their medicines four times, five times, six times a day. 
it may be that they miss a dose and they have to deal with more symptoms. And maybe they take a dose and sometimes it doesn't always work, so it's a little inconsistent. And so for those people with Parkinson's, deep brain stimulation is performed or may be performed after, if they're deemed a, a appropriate candidate uh, by the surgeon and by the neurologist and team involved. And uh, thin wires are, are inserted into the brain. It's a painless procedure. Uh, there's a little bolt burr hole in the skull where that's numbed up. And this device is all inside the body. So if you, everything's inside of the body. And afterwards, after that surgery, uh, when these wires are connected to a pacemaker-like device in the chest, all under the skin, they're brought back in clinic. We take them off of their medicine. They're taken completely off of all their Parkinson medicine. And they're very shaky and slow and stuff. And that may sound like a horrible thing to do. But the whole concept of this is to then turn the stimulator on. And one of my, myself or my colleague, Jamie, our nurse practitioner, will uh, program the, the unit. And we use electrical treatment to treat the abnormal condition inside of the brain to improve those symptoms. You know, then we later on will add medicine back on. And so you have a chemical treatment that the person was getting before, which is the levodopa, and electrical treatment, which is the deep brain stimulation. You got both working together. And we know that both work together and either alone. And, and this patient afterwards, this person with Parkinson's, will go from a situation where their meds are kicking in, wearing off, kicking in, wearing off, kicking in, wearing off. You can imagine living like that. You know, it's having to live your life around that is extremely difficult. Yeah, that and the care partner, you know, their spouse or friend or family, you know, it's just trying to help them best they can. And then and you, you go to a situation where instead of like that, there's there's very even symptoms throughout the day. And there may be breakthrough tremor at times if they're stressed or, you know, uh, they get sick or something. But but the coverage of those uh, Parkinson-like symptoms is significantly suppressed. And a very similar kind of patient that we talked about for uh, is, is a, a good candidate for the the pump, the Parkinson's pump, the Duopa pump is, is what we call it. And there's new things coming out every day uh, or every year, I should say. And and, th and those are people whose meds are not, uh, they're working, but they're not working all the time, wearing off. And uh, uh, the Parkinson's pump can be given and it's a little tube put into the body and uh, the medicine's pumped into the body kind of during the daytime hours, they take the pump off at night. And some people don't want the brain surgery. You know, they're just, even after we explain that we think it might be a good fit, that's just not their preference. And in the past, we only had Medicaid, oral medicines to offer. Now we have this pump system to keep them really even. And so it's really exciting to kind of have, have all that spectrum, all the way from exercise to brain surgery or pumps. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that, that we can do for our patients or you know, let them know about so they can live well. Yeah, that's interesting. So with those, the lead wires with the deep brain stimulation, are they basically just going into those dopamine um you know, production centers, this substantia nigra, right? Yeah, yeah. So so dopamine, exactly. Dopamine is produced in the substantia nigra. And uh, that scenario kind of deeper within the brain. And then it's sent along the ner the, the neurons, um, the, the nerve cells. They, they have these long kind of tentacles, if you will. And that they, they project onto other regions in the brain where the dopamine is delivered. So it's a little, a little bit different. It's not exactly in the dopamine producing cells. It's more in other cells that they're contacting. And so the two, two areas, one is the subthalamic nucleus. It's an area deep within the brain. And the other one's called the globus pallidus. And so based on the person's symptoms, we, uh, you know, myself and my surgical colleague, a uh, neurosurgeon, uh, will uh, decide what we think is going to be best for the person. That's why this is really important to, to, for people with Parkinson's when they get to the point of considering DBS surgery. I mean, I think, you know, certainly talking to neurologists is, is required, but then even a movement disorder specialist or Parkinson's specialist is really helpful. And, um, you know, most of the busier programs, it's kind of a, we have a, what we call a DBS committee here where it's uh, myself, uh, our neurosurgeon, uh, DBS neurosurgeon, uh, our nurse practitioner who does DBS full-time, that's all she does. 
uh, a neuropsychologist uh, as well. And the, again, these are all colleagues coming from in Spokane, from you know our independent clinic, Silk Road Neurology, Sacred Heart Hospital System, and MultiCare. So you know, and my colleague Dr. Manick as well, who's an excellent Parkinson's doctor here in the area. We all get together uh, one uh, a day a month, and we review you know cases and suitability. It's very important. So this the the important thing for DBS is the selection process. And so kind of a long answer to your question is, is during that kind of discussion is where we decide, that's when we decide, you know, this area of the brain is better than that area. Because we really want people who have DBS to do well, not just right away, but, but also for a long time. I mean, DBS is a very beneficial treatment for Parkinson's for a long, long time. Now, none of the things I've covered slows progression. And none, nothing that I've talked about so far, and nor that I have, you know, Mayo Clinic, Harvard, uh, none of these uh, real smart guys, n- n- you know, none of us have anything that's been shown to slow the death of nerve cells in the brain in Parkinson's. It may, I hinted at maybe exercise. It's hard to prove it because people that exercise also have a lot of other healthy behaviors that kind of make them hard to kind of isolate. Is it just exercise or some other, you know, healthy thing that they're doing? But um, uh, the Parkinson's progression is very, very slow over time, over many, many years, decades, even for some people. And uh, so the, the idea is to, you know, select the right kind of treatment, you know, do many different types of treatment at once, whether it's exercise, physical therapy, you know, the meds, even the surgery, you can do all those things at the same time. And it's really through a combination of all that and letting people know that that's very important, you know, that very important that we kind of involve all strategies to, to have them move better. Okay. So you mentioned, and obviously this is probably something um, most folks are interested in just being healthy in general. Are there specific types of things on the nutrition side of Parkinson's or the diet side that that has been shown to be more effective? Uh, you know, some diets versus other diets, or yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, I, I get asked about diet a lot in Parkinson's, and for the longest time, uh, I didn't really have anything I could directly cite specific to Parkinson's disease as being uh, uh, specifically helpful, proven. I, I kind of borrowed from the Alzheimer's disease research, which has shown you know for quite a while. We've known that the Mediterranean diet has been helpful, uh, probably to reduce inflammation. You know, maybe, uh, maybe slow the progression a little bit in some way, or, or make other aspects of of cognition better. Um, and with Parkinson's disease, lately in the net, in the last uh, few months, there's been a, a variety of articles published about you know finally the Mediterranean diet. Uh, and the benefits in Parkinson's disease. And so now I have a little more to stand on. I'm, I'm very much, I mean, I always try to make the best recommendations for my patients, but I default, uh, of course, first and foremost to what's been really shown and proven in it by the scientific method with testing and comparing against people that aren't receiving a kind of treatment or an intervention. And so what we found, not we, but the, the scientific community at large have found is that people with Parkinson's disease uh, with who, who first of all, the, the risk of Parkinson's as development seems to perhaps be a little bit lower if you have to, you've been on the Mediterranean diet or exposed to that diet. And, and it may be that, that the outcomes and overall Parkinson's symptoms are better in people that, that have, uh, uh, you know, kind of taken and been involved with the Mediterranean diet than, than not. And there's lots of different varieties of diet out there. And di- studying diets are a very, very complex factor, very, very hard to do. You have to have thousands and thousands of people to really do this well. And uh, if someone wants to say, well, what is the Mediterranean diet? Well, in general, the Mediterranean diet involves, you know, not exclusively, but largely relatively meatless diet. Um, the meats involved in the Mediterranean diet are more fish. Generally, fish is, is kind of the meat that's rec- recommended. Uh, however, large amounts of vegetables, fresh vegetables, not processed, uh, legumes, beans, 
um, olive oil as the preferred type of oil as opposed to other, you know, vegetable oils. Uh, and, uh, you know, generally not, not fried foods. So, you know, kind of the concept here is more whole foods, uh, unprocessed beans, large amounts of vegetables, a little amount of meat. If you're going to have meat, fish is generally fine. Uh, fattier fish, kind of cold water fish can be uh, quite, quite excellent. And, and that's really what we recommend. And, and that, and does that help dopamine release per se? Does it slow progression to Parkinson's? We don't know that, but, but it does seem that people do better that, that have that diet. And, and uh, what we know so far about the Mediterranean diet is perhaps that it has an anti-inflammatory effect. And inflammation, uh, you know, we don't know that inflammation is a cause of Parkinson's, but certainly you can see, you know, signs of inflammation in people that have Parkinson's. And it may be that if, if nerve cells are dying, other cells are recruited to the area to try to help those cells, and that's kind of the process of inflammation will happen. Uh, is if it you know becomes ramped up too much, that could spread to and spill over to other regions and cause damage from inflammation. So that, that that may be the effect there, but I'm just kind of speculating on that. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the the anti-inflammatory effect is one that usually kind of gets my attention because I have my autoimmune history. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got rheumatoid arthritis and mm-hmm. some other things going on, and and you know I work with a lot of patients with joint pain. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of joint pain, and people nowadays are are willing to do a little more in terms of like playing with their diet, I feel like, especially if, if they're motivated enough, right? Yeah, you yeah, absolutely, that. yeah. And, you know, I had a patient just recently who's coming in for knee pain, and, and she has bone-on-bone arthritis, and they're talking about a total knee replacement, but she's only in her 40s, and she's too heavy. You know, nowadays they have to be a certain BMI to get a knee replacement, otherwise the outcomes are just poor. And so she is willing to try the keto diet, which is basically high-fat, um, not very much meat on the keto diet either. And, you know, I think like most diets, you can do it uh, really well or you can do it poorly. You know, you can just eat a bunch of processed meat and cheese. That was more like Atkins years ago. Right. But interestingly enough, um, she comes back to PT within a week of having doing keto and she's trying to do it in a healthy way and her knee pain is gone. You know, she's losing weight, which is great, but that was why she was trying to do it. She mm. wanted to lose the weight to get the total knee. Um, so this idea of just decreasing the global amount of inflammation in your body is really fascinating to me. And I feel like the thing that a lot of these diets have in common is the emphasis on healthy fat. Yeah, absolutely. Not a ton of protein, which I'm guilty of doing too much protein because I'm kind of a carnivore, but the healthy fats, like you mentioned, the olive oil, um, the cold water fish, which is high in all those healthy omega-3 fats too. So I wonder, I mean, on a neurological standpoint, does it make sense that the brain does well with, you know, consuming healthy fat as energy or? Yeah, yeah uh, generally, I mean, the, the main energy source of the brain is glucose. So, okay. so, so the brain really runs first and foremost on, on glucose, but, um, you know, the overall metabolic profile of the body is still extremely important. And the body can, you know, a body that's under stress is going to, you know, have more toxic byproducts than a body that is, you know, in, in balance. And, and really, I think that's kind of the concept of dieting really should be not necessarily about kind of to your point, not what we take out, but what do we include? You know, we're always trying to remove, but, but, but you know, remove things that are unhealthy and like process, let's say, which we think, you know, there's problems with a lot of that, but, but really, you know, what is it that we, we do put in and, and exactly to your point, like healthy fats, you know, the, the fish that you mentioned. Um, and then the, I think the olive oil is a big piece. You know, there was something lately, uh, the, one of the, the more interesting developments about kind of the concept of cooking and dieting, Coconut oil, I think, has popped up on message boards for Parkinson's, and there's a lot of interest in that. And uh, there was a, a very big review not long ago on coconut oil, and uh, it actually turns out to be not not that safe uh, as as we thought. You know, 
Uh, and and the reason for that is just you know to what you mentioned that the fat content is quite a bit different and and uh, the, it's a natural product you know but but uh, it is a different type of of fat involved with that and so there wasn't as much data out on that and and one of the, the newer uh, studies that came out that did look at it found that the you know people didn't have as favorable blood count numbers lipid numbers and whatnot compared to olive oil so that's something that was that I kind of learned about in the last year a year and a half or so as that as that came out and i'm steering my main patients that i ask and have that inclination to make a dietary change more to olive oil mm-hmm. yeah. yeah my other favorite oil is avocado oil okay it's a nice one yeah it's um just it's little, pretty pretty similar I think, it is it's a little milder and you can cook it much higher before it burns so yeah, the that is the problem with olive oil, oil is it burns like at 325 you can tell i've kind of experimented with yeah, that as well and burn yeah. your onions if That's you're right. not careful um, if you're trying to saute onions or something or, you know, cook vegetables. But um, avocado oil burns, it's closer to like 450. So it's kind of nice, like right. frying things up in the pan, you know. Yeah. It's not deep frying, but <laughs> it's close. Well, good. So that um, that's quite a bit of information on treatment. It sounds, you know, kind of like your process is, correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of had exercise, medicine, and then your advanced treatment. And obviously yeah, and any combination Physical of therapy, those. OT, speech, and you know, rehab type stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Great, great. And then you kind of alluded to it a little bit just when you said, you know, stress has an impact on like breakthrough symptoms, things like that. Um, and I've heard you speak about this before, but do you want to touch on some of the the non-motor symptoms as you call them? So what else do people with yeah. Parkinson's, are they more prone to dealing with? Well, this is something certainly for the listener to visualize is, uh, you know, imagine the symptoms of Parkinson's. We've talked about the slowness, stiffness, tremor, the things we treat with dopamine medicines. Uh, those That's kind of the, uh, the tip of the iceberg. And you know there's a tip of the iceberg, then you know there's the rest of the iceberg. And the rest of the iceberg is underwater and it's much larger. You know, it's, it's what sunk, sunk the Titanic. You know, it, it's, it's a much larger, you know, type of problem. And, and that's, the, that, that's a frequent um, uh, way that we explain non-motor symptoms. And so we say non-motor because not just one symptom, non-motor because there's many. And they involve many different aspects of some of them neurologic, some not necessarily directly neurologic. Um, kind of starting from the top, you know, certainly cognition, cognitive impairment, thinking, uh, slow thinking, that can be a problem. Sleep, sleep is a huge problem in Parkinson's disease. Um, uh, sleep disorders can involve fragmented sleep. Um, we call have something called REM sleep disorder in Parkinson's disease. We see a lot of, and these are, and you know, there's different stages of sleep. There's early mild sleep. There's deep sleep, and then there's REM sleep. And REM sleep is. Maybe we've seen it in the movies or on TV where a person's asleep and their eyes are moving, and that's rapid eye movement, REM, R-E-M. And uh, during that phase, it's kind of more in the, the wee hours of the night near the end of the sleep cycle. Uh, that's kind of what we believe when memories are encoded. Uh, and the person's actively dreaming. And uh, during that state, it's supposed to be that the, the brain is chemically disconnected from the, the, the movement parts of the body, so one does not enact their dreams. And REM sleep disorder, the disorder part of this comes from that, that disconnection between the uh, movement part of the brain and the muscles doesn't really occur chemically. There's that chemical transmission doesn't dampen down like it's supposed to. And uh, people will frequently act out their dreams. And they tend to be dreams of chase and flight. So they're running, trying to get someone, someone's trying to get them, or there's kind of a particular quality. It's really interesting. And, and the person with Parkinson's, this is what makes it more fascinating and kind of peculiar, is a person with Parkinson's um, is not aware of this. By definition, they're in REM sleep. So they're never aware, can't be aware. 
uh, only their bed partner would know or, you know, someone in the next room maybe. And then commonly I'll hear the spouse or someone else said, well, uh, you know, I don't sleep in the same room anymore because of this reason. I know right away that's, that's, the, that's the cause, you know. And so that's very treatable as well. Uh, there's just kind of poor, poor sleep quality can be an issue. You can see sleep apnea in Parkinson's. Generally we think of people with sleep apnea sometimes it would be a little heavier, more overweight. Parkinson's patients may have that problem with a normal body weight because of muscular rigidity. Uh, so uh, thinking issues, sleep issues, a mood, uh, depression, and anxiety can be huge problems in Parkinson's disease. And we really don't understand that very well. Uh, it, it may end up being that, that, that depression and anxiety in Parkinson's may be one of the first examples we have of a degenerative form of mood disorder. You know, there's actually degeneration in, in nerve cells that make serotonin, you know, dopamine, norepinephrine. Those are our happy chemicals and energy chemicals. And with the generation, the, the, the degeneration in dopamine nerve cells may actually kind of involve some of those as well. And that can be a big problem. And, and you know, I like to use this as an example of the non-motor symptoms being really important. As I've seen, I remember one of my first patients I treated many years ago in Portland when I was training. I treated him. His Parkinson's was pretty bad. He came back in and, and it was one of my first as a Parkinson's kind of fellow treating one with levodopa. Came in and he looked great, and I was really proud of myself. I was like, "Oh boy, I don't have really done something." Well, how are you feeling, sir? I feel horrible. How could that be? You look amazing. Your Parkinson's measurements look fantastic with your movements. Tremor is all gone. Well, and then he went into it, and it turned out that you know, really quite depressed. You know, very depressed, and despite the movement symptoms being better, and that just highlights that, you know, the the really what we're what we're really after as healers and you know, whatever we do. Uh, in medicine and working with patients trying to make their lives better is, you know, uh, the textbook and how we think we're supposed to do things and what really someone needs can be very different. And really understanding what is important to the patient and their priorities should always guide, you know, where we're going with our visits and our plan of care. That should be how we prioritize it, I think. And uh, with Parkinson's disease, it may be that the movement symptoms, we can treat that, but we really need to also focus on these other issues. And we can't tackle them all always in one visit, but, but depression is a big one. Uh, the other aspects that are kind of interesting as well, kind of in unique, uh, a low blood pressure. So as you know, we're always worried about high blood pressure and killer related to heart disease and stroke and whatnot. But low blood pressure can be a problem in Parkinson's. So going from the sitting position to the standing position or laying down and standing up, our blood pressure drops a little bit. All Everyone does this. It's normal. Uh, but typically the, the blood, uh, the heart, the body, the brain tells the blood vessels to uh, clamp down a bit and to raise the blood pressure just really slightly so you don't faint when you stand up. In Parkinson's, because some of the, the degeneration that we see in other parts of the brain there, we also see them in the nerves out in the body as well, the nerves going to the blood vessels. And the blood vessels themselves are not well regulated, and therefore they, they, they don't really provide enough blood pressure uh, to be high enough when you're changing positions, standing up, and the person gets lightheaded, fatigued, uh, vision changes, headache, a variety of things can happen. But usually there's some kind of feeling of, of lightheadedness, some sense of like, I, I feel kind of lightheaded, like I'm about to pass out. And sometimes it leads to just passing out. Just They'll just pass out and fall, get injured. So it can be a big problem. We can treat that quite well also. Uh, so there, you know, there's lots of, there, there's other aspects of the non-motor symptoms. Those are, those are some of the big ones. Uh, but um, just to give you an idea that it's, uh, we consider this a movement disorder in neurology. That's kind of how we think about it. And we describe it and treat it as such. But the other parts of Parkinson's are very important. And it's also important to understand that some people don't have any non-motor symptoms or they're very minor. No one has every one of these non-motor symptoms. It's just something to kind of be aware of. We do our best to try to cover as much as we can. And really, you can probably tell by, by listening, we end up probably doing a lot of what others consider primary care 
as it turns as it turns out, you know, treating some of these other quote unquote non neurological symptoms because you know our patients are here and they, they need help on that. Yeah, I like that approach too. Like you said, um, you think of it. Well, my job, like you said early on, was just to fix the motor problems, and then it turns out the guy really isn't doing that great. Yeah. And, and then I think you probably dawned on you that it was your job to take care of him as a whole person. And yeah. Make sure his life, quality of life was good. That, too. Definitely have, have learned a great many things and continue from my patients. That's so. right. Yeah. And I think, you know, another one that you touched on at, at your presentation last year was just the, you know, like the spousal relations and stuff like that. I mean, your connection with your spouse and obviously motor, motor symptoms can impact your ability to interact with your spouse as well. And that's going to have a cognitive or a mental. Yeah. And that's one of the, the big parts of Parkinson's. It's really, you know, I think that the, there's still a lot more that we can do as a society. And, you know, certainly in the, the community, the, the solution is in, in the community-based solution or a local-based solution is how do we, you know, provide uh, opportunities for people that are, you know, caregivers, people that are taking care partners, taking care of those with Parkinson's. How do we, you know, prevent burnout? How are we vigilant and looking out for their health as well? One of the big reasons people with Parkinson's will end up you know, going to a nursing home, it doesn't actually have to do as much with their Parkinson's. It has as, as much or more to do with how the care partner's health is. And we know that, you know, their care partner can suffer a lot of negative health consequences and not just Parkinson's, but any kind of chronic illness. And so, you know, trying to be vigilant about that and fit that in, in addition to everything else we're talking about in those visits. Sometimes all we'll talk about in the visit is how do we make the care situation better? Is it time to transition care? You know, that's a, sometimes that's a conversation that works out over a couple of visits even. Yeah. Well, I think that's a nice lead into one of our uh, next topics, which is the just the resources that people have available. I feel like oftentimes I'll talk to someone who's working with Parkinson's and they don't quite know everything that's available to them, not only for resources for the person with Parkinson's, but for the care provider and the spouse just to keep them engaged. So do you have advice on on different things people can take advantage when it comes to this? Well, you know, the the, the general thing that's available in every community is the Area Agency on Aging. Uh, that There's some form of that in almost every community in, in the U.S. And that's, uh, uh, you know, has a variety of things in the area and links to that uh, that is good for resources in general for aging and problems with transition of care or maybe finding social workers to, to help a person navigate, a, you know, a system that's complex. There's uh, attorneys that can be helpful with kind of, you know, things related to aging and, and estates and whatnot. It, it really, it's not a medical issue, but uh, per se, but it's something people ask me all the time. And I don't quite know, know what to say to them. So I'm glad those resources are here. Uh, specific to Parkinson's, you know, I think in every community, hopefully or in many communities, uh, there, there are Parkinson's specific resources. You know, the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation is here in Spokane. Uh, and one of the big bases in Seattle, but they've really uh, dedicated uh, a lot of resources to having a local presence here in town. Um, and Hallie Goodwin is a really phenomenal representative of that group here and uh, down on Sprague Avenue uh, here near and near close into town. And they've got a lot of specific aspects uh, of resources for, uh, for Parkinson's, the treatments we've talked about. They have a lot of information about that, the non-motor symptoms, a lot of that information. We have this as a clinic as well, but just having that place for people to go to away from a medical clinic and, you know, meet and talk. Uh, you know, one of the best resources for people with Parkinson's are other people with Parkinson's. Um, you know, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I think that it takes a little time to settle into the the concept of, you know, I'm a person living with a chronic condition. You know, most of us don't don't want, you know, don't want to accept that. And, and I completely understand how, how that could be. Um, and at the time of a new diagnosis is actually probably the, 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 the time that a person is least likely to go to a support group, which is interesting. You think that'd be the time they'd really want to jump in there. 
but there's a lot of, of hesitancy towards that. And, and uh, you know, I think there's definitely efforts underway in the area. You know, for some of our patients have been involved in, in doing uh, young onset support groups or maybe new diagnosis groups being a little bit different. Um, and and uh, people that have lived with Parkinson's for years are, are not as worried about going to support group and seeing other people that have some disabilities, maybe with walkers, whereas a person who's newly diagnosed and very mild symptoms, it, it can be a, a lot, a lot to take in. And we don't always actively encourage right away a person to do that unless they're seeking that out. But uh, the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation here has been a phenomenal partner and a great resource for our patient. Uh, the American Parkinson's Disease Association has a presence in Washington State, and they're, they're a great patient resource as well. And they've just done a wonderful research fair lately here in Seattle that's still online, I believe. And then at the national level, the Parkinson's Foundation uh, is involved with uh, more on the provider level, kind of making sure that providers like yourself or, or me, uh, other doctors, are kind of have the resources available and that there's kind of standards that they're kind of meeting and, you know, kind of examples to be set. Uh, and then, you know, there's other the other resource more on the research in is Michael J. Fox Foundation is a just, you know, what, what he's done and his group's done is truly phenomenal in terms of leading the charge for research for Parkinson's. So, you know, all the way from like the grassroots here in Spokane, we're fortunate to have NWPF, the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation here physically, which is, it means a lot to me as a provider. And, uh, and then all the way to research with Michael J. Fox Foundation, which is, you know, leading the charge, contributing to the development of many of the trials that we've been running as well. Awesome. Well, good. So in terms of other general tips, that probably covers a lot of it right there. You know, take advantage of yeah. the resources, you mentioned exercise once or twice. Oh yeah, or three times. Exercise, uh, <laughs> exercise, exercise. <laughs> there you go, and um, just staying healthy in general. You know, keeping your inflammation down. Yeah, you know uh, that's the thing is, uh, you know, if you've got Parkinson's, you want to do the best you can to try to stay free or, or push back as far as long as possible the other active medical problems. And that's the one thing people say. What can I do? What can this? Is the one thing. What can I really do to? to have my Parkinson's kind of be a milder form. And, and I would just say, stay healthy. All these things are so important. Your general health, your general primary care visits, your primary care doctor is a, a, a our primary care provider uh, is, is a valuable resource. The healthier a person stays in general, the easier it is to manage their Parkinson's symptoms. If you have Parkinson's and you throw in diabetes as poorly controlled, you know, strokes because blood pressure has been poorly controlled, uh, you're extremely overweight perhaps because, you know, your diet's not controlled. I mean, th th these, these make, all these things make Parkinson's a lot harder to manage. So I try to just use this as a general health reminder for many of my patients. Yeah. So just the holistic approach, like mm -hmm. just take care of everything. Okay. That's great. And then you mentioned um, earlier on, we kind of alluded to, some research that you're doing. Did you want to just touch on a couple of the things that you're yeah. looking into? Yeah. So the, this is a really fascinating time to uh, be working in research for Parkinson's disease. Uh, you know, uh, our, our research arm of the clinic is called Inland Northwest Research. It's a completely independent company, but it's uh, integrated uh, very closely with Silkirk Neurology, our, our private practice here. And uh, we have five uh, full-time dedicated research study coordinators uh, nearly all of them focused on, on Parkinson's disease uh, clinical trials. We've got one of the largest clinical trials uh, uh, locations here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, e e easily as large as our colleagues in, in Seattle and, and Portland, which surprises people at times. And our trials uh, really are, you know, kind of thinking about them in a couple different ways. One, one helpful way to consider it is uh, there are clinical trials for people newly diagnosed who are not on any medicines, maybe within a couple years of diagnosis. And, we have got a variety of trials looking at those people to see if we can use treatments, strategies to try to slow progression early on. Because how we look at 
uh, maybe strategies for treatment early on are going to be different for people with more prominent, more advanced Parkinson's. So we've got treatments for, or we got, we have, um, I should say, uh, a research uh, therapies where we're looking at early Parkinson's, uh, research therapies where we're looking uh, at moderate Parkinson's where the meds are kicking in and wearing off. So we have medicines that might work better than the current meds that were current that, that are approved that we're testing to see if, in fact, they do. Uh, and uh, deep brain stimulation uh, studies as well. We're looking at different aspects of deep brain stimulation to figure out if we can learn more about that and how to make that better. There's new deep brain stimulation devices that have recently come out that we're trying to learn a lot about. Uh, looking at uh, uh, different types of, of ways of slowing progression possibly. And when nothing, again, none of this stuff has been proven. This is why we're, we're involved with it as research. So kind of comparing against like a control group or a placebo, looking at uh, like an uh, antibody. So antibodies that our white blood cells normally would make something like that, perhaps, uh, you know, would something like that, a slow progression of Parkinson's. We, we, we don't know, but that's one of the areas we're kind of actively looking at. Um, and then uh, one of the more exciting things has been, we've been part of is uh, the development of, uh, you know, the levodopa pump. So different types of levodopa pumps. There's the Duopa pump that's already FDA approved. Now we're working on a study right now looking at uh, how that might help non-motor symptoms. And also uh, some other uh, pumps where the de delivery method is a little bit different, uh, maybe a, a subcutaneous type delivery. So more like a diabetic type pump, but for mm -hmm. Parkinson's disease to see if, you know, that's more feasible, a little easier for them to manage and a little less intrusive than some of the other ways of, of, of delivering the medicine. And so really through a variety of, of, you know, different types of research strategies for people early on in Parkinson's to more advanced, we even have some trials for people that have cognitive impairment we're kind of looking at some trials to see if you know if medicines or treatments we could use for people with issues with their mood or, or thinking or whatnot in Parkinson's so we can do better than we're currently doing right now so again until these things are approved by the FDA it's all considered experimental and we don't recommend that outside of a trial a, a trial that's been approved by an institutional review board that's being monitored that people would you know would do these things but but to be able to to bring these to our patients here in this area that otherwise wouldn't have that opportunity, it's a big deal. It, it really means a lot to me uh, to offer, you know, opportunities to participate in moving the knowledge along. You know, in some, case, in some cases, they may have access to, to, to um, some types of uh, uh, possible beneficial treatments earlier on, you know, as, as participating in research studies. But um, that's just a really neat aspect that adds a little bit more than just routine, you know, medical care. Yeah, like you said, it sounds exciting to help you know, move uh, the body of knowledge along and yeah, kind of drop people. a drop in the bucket. And then tell my patients it'll over, overflow at some point, you know, once, once we get there. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, good. Well, that's probably quite a bit of information for most people about Parkinson's. I think you've covered all the, the major points that I was curious about. And, um, if you don't mind, we'll just get into like the really fun questions next. So sure. So we can end on a fun note. Absolutely. That sound good? Yeah. Okay. So I like to ask these ones of people that come on the podcast with me. Do you have a favorite book that you would recommend or just a good book you've read recently that kind of caught your attention? Yeah. You know, uh, I guess one of my, my all-time favorite writers is James Joyce and um, uh, probably his book. Uh, there's a couple of them that I really enjoy, but the one that's more of a I'm not gonna not overly complex that anyone can kind of really jump into and enjoy is the portrait of the artist as a young man. I really have always enjoyed that. I read that in high school. Uh, that was kind of a, a fun one. Um, I still am a big fan of Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey. Back <laughs> so, to your Greek days. Huh? <laughs> so I've always been kind of partial to the classics, I guess. But I I, I don't know. I like all sorts of things. Uh, 
portrait of an artist as a young man. Yeah, portrait of a portrait, a portrait of the artist as a young man. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that was James uh, Joyce. James Joyce. Yeah. I have to admit, I haven't heard of James Joyce. Yeah, uh, it's an Irish writer from from the kind of turn of the century. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's cool. Did you Last ever run across the book um, Predictably Irrational? Sounds very familiar. I don't yeah. recall it exactly. But. I kind of like these books too that are just kind of like study of human behavior. Oh yeah. Less. Yeah. And um, like completely irrational behavior that if you were questioned on it, you would say, oh no, people don't do that. But it's predictably irrational. It happens time and time again, over and over. And they re people research this stuff. Oh yeah. Like they, re they research the death out of this stuff. Yeah, I think they, they call it uh, be, uh, uh, behavioral economics is the, yes. the government way of That's, looking at it. Yeah. And behavioral economics is what he yeah, teaches. Yeah, Cass Sunstein is a writer who is an economist, I think went to the University of Chicago School of Economics, which they produced a lot of prominent thinkers and uh, uh, really kind of, not, you know, involved with the movement is behavioral economics. It's yeah. like, you know, we, 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 we can present a rational argument for doing things a certain way, but people are going to do what they're going to do. And yeah. why is that? It's kind of looking at it from a oh, different, a different angle. It's yeah. kind of like the, one of the easiest examples I remember from the book was like the blind taste test of Coke versus Pepsi, mm -hmm. which for the record, you shouldn't drink either. Um, <laughs> That's but in a blind taste test, um, Pepsi wins. Like statistically, it wins. And then, but if you tell people which one is Coke and which one is Pepsi, Coke wins. And so it's just like by triggering these little parts right. of your brain, like your expectations and things like that. Like predictably, even though Pepsi tastes better, if you know it's Coke, you're going to say the Coke. Well, so, you know, I did confess that I am a Southerner. So to me, all <laughs> soft drinks are Cokes, you know? <laughs> so we would ask, what kind of Coke would you like? Well, I'd like a Sprite, you know? <laughs> I've heard that before, yeah. Now, that, now that's irrational right there. But no, I mean, lately, you know, I'm reading, I'm, I'm picked up the bonfire of the vanities from Tom Wolfe lately and talk about irrational behavior. It's looking back at the eighties and more. It's like, why, why would you want to, why would you want to read about that? That's kind of dated. I'm like, wow, that's the time I grew up. And so understanding the eighties is one of the wildest times still in recent memory, I think yeah. in many ways. You can explain the eighties. You're in uh, good company, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Okay. So portrait of artist as a young man. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm gonna have to look that up. And just for people uh, listening, I post all this stuff in the show notes. So if you don't oh, okay. have a napkin to write that down on or whatever, you can, <laughs> you can look at the show notes. Um, good. Do you have a favorite food or restaurant? Yeah, you know, um, one of my favorite foods is uh, Palak Paneer. It's an, an Indian food. It's kind of uh, like ghee, butter, and spinach. Oh. Uh, I, I, I also like macaroni and cheese and, uh, you know, not to sound like completely uncultured. I don't know if this is a valid comparison or not, but I always tell my wife, it's, you know, I, I feel like it maybe is, could it be the Indian equivalent of macaroni and cheese possibly? I don't know. It's like uh, one of my, my favorite things that I don't get enough of probably can't really get enough of. Palak paneer? Palak paneer. Yeah. yeah, Palak, yeah. I'm going to Google that. Palak paneer. Yeah. I'm going to try to spell that in front of people. Um, but it's basically ghee, which is refined butter, butter. and spinach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm halfway there with my dietary recommendations. Okay. Very good. Palak <laughs> Um I may already know the answer to this next one. Favorite activity to do in and around Spokane? Well, you know, uh, anything out there, skiing. I love to ski. Uh, I do that all the time. I like to play my guitar. I don't, I don't get to play my guitar enough. I like to do that. Right. And uh, Maybe that could be one of your future research uh, things is whether music helps. With well, that's a whole other conversation. There's some evidence there. Yeah. The brain yeah. In oh, yeah. Very ways. much so. Novel. It's a novel uh, um, a movement that's novel uh, generally kind of routes through a, a different 
neuropathway than the movement that's already learned and many of the Parkinson's movements are already learned movements. So. Yeah. And you were mentioning like the dancing and boxing earlier versus like a, a set exercise. And I think right. one of the big differences is that when you're performing an exercise consciously and intentionally, mm -hmm. you know exactly what you're doing next is this coming at you. Whereas when you're boxing, you know, you're actually having to make decisions on the fly. Right. Exactly. Expectedly. Yes. And dancing to some extent is the same way. You've got to react and things. And I, I can imagine it's a much different pathway. Yeah, brain. absolutely. I think that's very valid. Yeah. So music, music for Parkinson's. Okay. So skiing and playing the guitar at the same time once in a while. Uh, I haven't done that yet. Okay. I haven't done that. I'm tempted now that you mentioned okay. we'll look for <laughs> it you. might not go well, but <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll look for you. Uh, is there anything in the area that you've been really wanting to do but haven't quite made it around to yet? Uh, you know, uh, I, I've been in the northwestern Portland for years and here, and I've never been to Mount Rainier. Uh, so we're planning to go camping at Mount Rainier this summer. That's on, very much on my, my list. Are you able to ski there year-round? Is it... Uh, yeah. kind of uh, well, there, there's, uh, there's some skiing areas kind of off the base of that uh, there, uh, Chris, uh, Crystal Mountain or the, some of those. But I don't think... Uh, Probably not the skill level that I would be appropriate to okay. go, up, go up top there. You want to come back and yeah. keep working. Awesome. Okay, well, good. And then what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you if they want to know more about Parkinson's or, you know, schedule an appointment? Yeah, certainly. You know, we don't require referral. Uh, certain certain types of insurances uh, may require referral, but we don't, we don't really require referral to come in. Looking up Selkirk Neurology, so www.selkirk, like the mountains, uh, selkirkneurology.com. Uh, or Inland Northwest Research, inwr.com. In uh, sorry, inwresearch.com would be a great way to find out about the research uh, stuff. And then certainly just call in, ask your primary care doctor if there's concerns, about Parkinson's, other tremors, movement disorders, deep brain stimulation, that, that type of stuff. That's kind of the stuff we do. Awesome. And I'll put all those links in the show notes too to the different websites and things like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, people should be able to, like I said, learn more about you or now they know a lot about you. Yeah, I guess so. We'll come in to see you <laughs> yeah. and uh, they have a better view of your passion for, for really helping people beyond just the, beyond just, I guess, what maybe stereotypically people think that, you know, you just provide medication. Sure. So it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right. Well, um, thank you for joining me, Dr. Aldred. Yeah, thank and, you for having uh, me. I had yeah. a great time. Yeah, and thank you to everyone for listening to the podcast. Like I mentioned, I'll post everything in the show notes. Um, for all the episodes of the podcast, you can visit the stayhealthyspokane.com website. So that's pretty easy to find, just stayhealthyspokane.com, um, which basically reroutes you to a, a webpage that I've created just for the podcast. So, um, And as always, if people have feedback, want to get in touch with me, uh, I'll have my email link down there too. I'd love to hear people's ideas on what we could do for the show. Or, you know, once in a while, it's just good to hear how much you like the show, hopefully. Uh, it goes both ways, I guess. But again, thanks for listening, and um, I'll talk to you guys again next time. Thank you for listening to the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast, sponsored by Gordon Physical Therapy. To stay connected with the Stay Healthy Spokane community, visit www.stayhealthyspokane.com. And we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Spokane podcast. This has been a Humble Pod production. Stay humble.